0: Welcome to the Irish Medical Times podcast. Your host, editor Terence Cosgrave, discusses the most important medical topics of the month with Ireland's top doctors, surgeons, and healthcare professionals. Check out imt.ie or the print edition for more details on the issues discussed here. And now, the Irish Medical Times podcast for June 2021.
1: so uh, for our very first podcast we have a very important story and uh, uh, with me here I have um, Mohsen Javidpour a consultant neurosurgeon in Beaumont and also Professor Donico O'Brien and uh, I'm going to talk to them about the recent uh, um, designation of the Matter Hospital as a major trauma center. So um, Mohsen if I can ask you first um, Where are you from? How did you end up in this situation? Where did you go to school? How did you end up in Ireland? How did you end up in Beaumont?
2: Can we start at the beginning? Sure. So uh, I was born in Tehran in Iran and I moved to Ireland in 1985 when I was uh, 15 Um, and went to school here at the time. There was the Iran-Iraq war on in Iran and uh, both my brother and I moved here. My brother moved the year before me in 84 and then I moved here in 1985. I always say to people, there, there weren't that many people my colour in Ireland at the time. <laughs> when I walked on the street, people would look at me. So it was uh, it was a great time to come to Ireland, actually. I really liked it. Went to uh, uh, went, did my leaving search uh, and got into Trinity when I was 17 uh, to do medicine. Um, finished medical school and then did my basic surgical rotation, as it was called those days in Dublin and Waterford. Uh, And then went over to the UK and did my neurosurgical training in Manchester and Liverpool. Uh, Subsequently, went to Toronto to subspecialise in parts of neurosurgery, particularly vascular neurosurgery. And then I came back to Liverpool, to the Walton Centre. I was a consultant there for about seven years and then came back to Ireland in 2011.
1: May I ask, what was the attraction in coming back to Ireland? Why did you return to Ireland?
2: Well, I lived in Ireland from the age of 15 for about close to 15 years before I went to the UK. So it really became my home. Um, I married an Irish girl and uh, we both wanted to come back and I I love living here and I love working here.
1: Fantastic. I'm just going to ask your colleague uh, here, Professor O'Brien, about your route into neurosurgery because you're both in in the same place. So... Uh, kind of very
3: similar to Mosin. Um I just uh, got a, an experience of neurosurgery at, at, a, at a, an early part of my medical career and became just completely fascinated by it, Came almost obsessed with it. What's the attraction? Uh, the attraction is that it's a hugely, uh, as I said many times over the years, it's a hugely interventional specialty. It's a hugely dynamic, uh, life-changing specialty for the patients. It's, uh, in the emergency setting, it's, it's life and death. Uh, within a matter of hours, uh, with regards to my own specialty of epilepsy surgery uh, for adults and children, it's it's completely life changing in terms of uh, alleviating their seizures. And um, it's uh, and another thing about neurosurgery is that it is a huge user of um, technology as it comes on stream. In that, you know, as engineers and computer scientists d- develop. Uh, technologies which can be applied in the commercial setting then very very quickly it's it's these are adapted for in the medical setting with regard to um for example navigation in computer science uh, with regard to um uh, uh, robotic assisted surgery etc so it's, it's it's a wonderfully um scientifically orientated specialty and it's a wonderfully dynamic and, and as i said interventional specialty
1: Right. And did you do a similar route to uh, to, to Mosin in terms of traveling internationally and, and studying and working internationally? Yeah, I, I grew up
3: in Cork and then I went to UCC. Um, had a fantastic time there. I did the old system first in that I did general surgery. This was prior to the Calman the uh, system, which came in in 1997. So I did the fellowship in general surgery in the Mercy Hospital in, in Cork and then um, went into... Um, neurosurgery uh, with uh, Ted Buckley and Charlie Marks in Cork. Um, uh, I was really inspired by both of them and then finished my training in, in, in Beaumont. And then I I'd spent some time in Washington University in St. Louis in the United States, did uh, they, subspecialty so training in epilepsy surgery in children there. Then went abroad to uh, the uh, the children's uh, neurosurgery in, at Hey in Liverpool and actually met Mosin at um, the Walton Centre I, I did adult su- su- neurosurgery there uh, so most and I go back a long way as it were we go back to uh, our time together in, in, at the Walton Centre in Liverpool.
1: Cool and when you um, you know when you're approaching a patient is there I mean how stressful is it when you have somebody's when you have that life-changing experience in your hand and how do you handle that? Yeah well it's you handle it through training I, mean, I think
3: you know it just doesn't Acquired doesn't just drop out of the sky straight away. You know, it is a hugely stressful um, specialty and you need to be able to handle that. And in fact, I say to junior doctors in training up front before they ever go into neurosurgery that it is very stressful and you have to be able to deal with that. And you have to be able to, um, I suppose, uh, as our colleague Professor Walger said on TV recently, you have to focus on the task at hand and the job at hand and put emotion to the side for the duration of the operation. And focus on the job, and ultimately get it done.
1: So, Moseen, you've done us the great uh, favor of writing this article for us about the um, designation of the matter as a uh, as a, a major trauma center. And uh, when most of the neurology in Ireland is done in, in Bowman. Beaumont, and it, you know, I, I, could you just begin to explain to me why uh, why that is a bad idea, and why why major uh, why, why major trauma centers, first of all, are so important. And secondly, why they need to be relocated in, in neurological centers.
2: Okay, um, I just want to clarify a couple of things first. One is that this is not in any way a Beaumont versus Matter issue. This is not a fight between Beaumont Hospital and Matter Hospital uh, as, as individual hospitals. The other thing is that w- we have to get the terminology really correct. Otherwise, it leads to misunderstandings. We're talking purely about neurosurgery. Not, not neurology, uh, and, and that has led to some misunderstanding before. Um, we are purely concerned about really serious patient safety issues if the major trauma centre is not co-located with the National Neurosurgical centers, and these concerns are based on large amounts of data, clinical evidence and international standards. So um, As you know, what's happened is that the health minister on the 27th of April announced that the the implementation of the national uh, trauma system in Ireland. Now, the trauma system involves many different facets. It's not just about the major trauma center. It involves several several trauma units which uh, deal with the more moderate and mild injuries. And then the designation of the major trauma centers that deal with the most severe injuries. Um, The plan is for the Cork University Hospital to be a major trauma center. And for the Matter Hospital is to be the major trauma center for what's called the Central uh, Trauma Network, which it basically covers about two thirds of the two thirds of Ireland in terms of provision of uh, major trauma services. So um, the, um, These major trauma centers are designed to essentially deal with the most severely injured patients. We define those as those who have an injury severity score of more than 15, uh, or for short, ISS of more than 15. Um, um, Essentially, the reason for having a major trauma center dealing with these patients is that these are the patients that have the highest mortality rates so 75% of trauma deaths occur in patients that have a a severe injury in other words an ISS of more than 15. The reason we wrote the article is that um, and and it's an article I've written but it's been endorsed by all neurosurgeons in Ireland including the neurosurgeons in Dublin in the Beaumont National Neurosurgical Centre, the neurosurgeons in Cork University Hospital and the paediatric neurosurgeons in the Children's Hospital. So we all Unanimously uh, feel that um, there are patient safety issue concerns.
1: If we can skip ahead a little bit to, I want to, I really want to get to the patient safety uh, issue, which is the most important one. But in terms of how this decision was actually made, and you point out in your article that it it may it's it's not really as you say a matter Bowman thing. It's more they they had a process for coming to this decision, and they may not have had the neurological or the neurosurgical. A contribution to it that may be justified because i believe that they they only um, neurosurgeon on the panel was was from the uk so can you tell me a little bit about how they arrived at that decision and why no, you think
2: there, that they there wasn't any neurosurgical person on the panel on the panel yeah. okay. That's so, uh, the point,
1: yes okay
2: exactly. so okay so essentially what happens the, the actual trauma system implementation goes back several years and that's not what we have any issue with and we are completely pro-trauma system and major trauma centres. However, the process was that the HSE about 18 months to two years ago appointed uh, an independent assessment panel to visit uh, six hospitals in Dublin and to decide which of those hospitals is best suited to house the major trauma centre. Now, On the independent assessment panel, there were uh, three uh, specialists in uh, retrieval and emergency medicine. Uh, There was one specialist in orthopedics uh, and one specialist in intensive care. Uh, What we are concerned about is that um, there was no neurosurgeon or neuro intensive care specialist uh, on that panel. In other words, people who deal on a daily basis, with severe head injured patients throughout their course in hospital were not there. And we all know that we are the advocates for our patients. And you need somebody there who says, guys, 75% of severely injured patients have head injury. So uh, you need a representative for those patients on that panel. We have written um, repeatedly to the health minister, to the Department of Health. Actually, over the last 18 months, we started writing um, on the 24th of October 2019. So this process of the independent assessment panel visiting the hospitals in Dublin happened in August 2019 and they visited the hospitals. They made a recommendation to the HSE. The HSE subsequently approved it and sent it to the Department of Health. And then the Department of Health approved it and the minister announced the decision more than 18 months after the visits have been done. Uh, He eventually announced it on the 27th of April. Actually, even that gap is a problem and I'll come to it because things have happened in that time. Information has become available in that time, which the independent assessment panel wouldn't have had. But going back to the the makeup of the independent assessment panel, we've been um, just we we just can't believe that there wasn't a a person with neurosurgical expertise on this panel given that 75 percent of patients who end up in a major trauma center have severe brain injuries
1: it is it is the old joke but we are talking about brain surgery and we're talking about bureaucrats who don't always understand the the that patient care is 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 Relative to the specialities and relative to the time, and you've you've used the phrase "time is brain," and that's a very famous phrase. We all know how important it is to get people to to the right doctor and the right location at the right time. Donna, can I can I Donna, can I ask you um, from your experience abroad and in Ireland, what is the sort of what are the sort of problems that can arise from not having the full expertise um, present when the when the when the patient presents? Like what would be the advan what was, what is the advantage in, in being able to go in having Bowman as the major trauma center?
3: Well, um I, I suppose the, the the problem with regard to the proposal which is out there now is that that setup isn't reflected in units abroad. So it's kind of difficult to compare that to units abroad, mm-hmm. uh in that um other units abroad ha have Uh, all of the neurosurgical services on the same site as as the major trauma center. And to come to your your question, Terence, the problem uh, is that, um, for for example, caring for uh, a a severely brain injured patient just doesn't involve neurosurgery, it involves neurosurgical nurses, it involves neurophysiology, it involves neurointensive care, Um, it involves interventional neuroradiology, it involves uh, rapid access CT scans, it involves a whole cohort of things. It involves a, a, an enormous um, a neurosurgical junior doctor set up. And um, not having all of those on the one site uh, can lead to a situation whereby, uh, for example, um, particularly with regard to interventional neuroradiology, we do come across complex situations whereby um, somebody may crash their car as a consequence of them having a ruptured aneurysm. They get a subarachnoid hemorrhage due to a ruptured aneurysm. They lose consciousness, awareness. Then th- th- there's an impact then as a consequence of that, i.e. a car accident occurs. So that patient has had a, a ruptured aneurysm. They now have a brain injury. So if that patient ends up in a unit without intervention neuro in radiology or without a vascular neurosurgeon, well, the fundamental problem which caused the head injury in the first place isn't dealt with. And then that patient may have to be moved to a unit then to deal with that,
1: and of course that takes time. That and it, takes time. And so I'm, that's
3: just one example, but there are several other examples. In that, um, you know, it's not all about kind of basic neuro ICU. It's about uh, complicated issues. In that, in that, um, for example, we work very closely in, in the, with the pituitary team at Beaumont with uh, Chris Thompson, Mick O'Reilly, Mark Sherlock, Emiraga, who are, are our neuroendocrine uh, team. And patients with head injuries can get complex neuroendocrine problems such as uh, SIADH, uh, triple phase response, diabetes insipidus, And it takes a huge amount of experience and, um, to deal with that. And um, uh, I think that uh, it's very important to have all of those people, uh, all of those specialties on site. Uh, uh, caring for a, a head injury patient does just doesn't involve having uh, neurosurgical input into the case, the what, what I refer to as the allied specialties involved, such as neuroendocrine, neuro ENT, neurointerventional, uh, neurophysio, uh, neuroanesthesia. There's a whole cohort of, of specialties, involved. and a lot of
1: these specialties have just been developed in the yeah. last. I,
3: uh, there's one, just one important point which seems to be lost in all of this, in, in that um, you know, Beaumont Hospital has done a fantastic job caring for patients, uh, and as most said, this isn't a fight about. It. The matter versus Beaumont. and you know there there are outstanding doctors and nurses working in, of course, the, yeah. in, the, in the matter. But Beaumont has been caring for head injury patients for thirty years, and over that time it's built built up a thirty year experience of managing patients. So I mean, why why move it from Beaumont? You know there's a, there's a huge ethos. there's a huge experience. there's a huge history. there's a there's a huge experience. Uh, there in, in terms of caring for them and I, I would go so far as to say you know we all get more wise and more experienced as we go through our careers And we have a long career and a long history of caring for patients and you know moving a unit to a different hospital frankly deprives patients of our experience
1: of looking after patients over the last number of years. So we're in the evidence business medicine is an evidence-based thing Mohsen would you take me through some of the evidence that you have that you have in the article in Irish Medical Times this month that explains particularly in the UK which I thought was fascinating that explains that this is really hasn't been done anywhere else successfully.
2: Yeah it just can I go back to your question about brain Absolutely. It's, it, time is brain and uh, what I was saying is it doesn't just apply to stroke it applies to head injury brain hemorrhages tumours where pa- patients have raised intracranial pressure and it's really important. And this is the data that I'm saying has come out out of the UK over the last 18 months, which wasn't available when we had the site visits. And that's about the timing of intervention for the different specialties in the setting of major trauma. And if you look at data that's come out of the UK, uh, in, and you're talking about over 100,000 patients, that sort of data very, very high quality data, over uh, 60 percent of patients that are operated within four hours of major trauma are being operated on on their brain. I mean, every other part of the body comes way, way down below that. And if we look at Irish data, which I subsequently requested from the National Office of Clinical Audit, NOCA, if you look at 2018, patients that arrive uh, within six hours Uh, um, within six hours have surgery within six hours of arrival to a hospital 64% of them had brain surgery 12% abdominal surgery 9% thoracic surgery and of that 9% actually uh, uh, probably about 50% is chest drains rather than thoracotomies and about 6% spinal surgery so it really when the patient arrives in a major trauma center The biggest need is for neurosurgery to be present in in a big way and it's allied specialties, interventional neuroradiology, neuro ICU and all of that. So it's very difficult to provide that in a small center. Uh, You really need a big comprehensive center to deal with that sort of emergency. And if you think about any major disaster and MTCs are being designed so that in the case of major disaster where hundreds of patients are being brought in at the same time, where 60 to 70% of them have head injury, you can cope with it. Now, if you have a center, which has one or two or three neurosurgeons on site, they won't be able to cope with it. You need a major, neurosurgical centre with major infrastructure.
1: Well, let's hope and pray we don't have a major incident like that that would require that. But certainly we have to be prepared for that happening. Sure. I looked at the figure here where you said of the 27 major trauma centres in the UK, 25 are located with uh, within major neurological centres. And the other two have serious questions to be asked about them. Could you just tell me a little bit about those other two, that this is the situation we're going into and and the potential trouble we may have? Can you just illustrate that for me, please? Absolutely. And
2: and this is really important because there are a lot of people um, going around saying major trauma centers save lives. Now, we have to look at what type of major trauma center is saving lives. So when you look at the UK, you're right. 25 of 27 centers are co-located with the major neurosurgical center. Neurosurgery in the UK, like in Ireland, is very centralized because internationally that's shown to result in better outcomes for patients. And if you, uh, for example, go to Greater Manchester, which uh, covers a, a, a large population, or uh, merseyside liverpool these all have single neurosurgical centers they don't have multiple centers and their major trauma centers uh, uh, 25 of the 27 are co-located with their major neurosurgical centers the two who aren't one of them has run into major problems with the care for head injury they've had the highest mortality rate for a head injured patient and this is adjusted mortality rates For patients with head injury it approaches three standard deviations below the mean they've been investigated and the outcome of the investigation is that the that neurosurgery and major trauma center should be co-located in that region the other center is in London which first of all I would say it's always a little bit I don't know I I don't think it's the right thing for us to model ourselves based on uh, something that happens in London London is a massive place it has four major trauma centers three of which are co-located with their neurosurgery departments one isn't and we are going to model the irish major trauma center on that Uh, and it just it really doesn't make sense to do that you have to look at what's happening in 98 percent of the world and go with that model because the data that shows that major trauma centers save lives are coming out of centers co-located with the uh, with the major neurosurgical centers.
1: Uh, I'm looking at the figure you quote in your article from the Lancet showing that the mortality rate of patients with head injury is halved if they're cared for in neuro- neurological centers equipped with neurointensive units compared to non-neurosurgical centers. Donica, would you like to expand on that and I mean, is there a danger here for patients that we won't see the improvements we should see through the introduction of major trauma centres if uh, if if it's not located in a neurosurgical centre like Beaumont?
3: Absolutely, yes. Um, and I, I just go back to the point I made earlier. There's absolutely nothing wrong with the care that the patients get in Beaumont, and there's nothing wrong with the mortality figures of of, of what's offered and what's produced in Beaumont. Um, I, I would have thought that. Um, Yes. As I said recently, I think it's a retrograde step. I think, um, I think the decision is, is a poor one. And I think, um, um, I mean, the great kind of thinking of of giants of medicine, like Jack Phillips and David Bowcher Hayes and, and, and all these fantastic surgeons over the last number of years was to increase the standard of care and, and increase excellence through centralization of services and through having multiple specialties and for their trainees to go abroad to, to um, kind of learn new techniques and bring them home, and then expand on things uh, in a centralised way. So here, rather than centralising things, we're decentralising things.
1: Yeah, well, there's there's kind of a, 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 a I suppose a, tra- a tradition in Ireland of of uh, one for everybody in the audience. The, and, the, the, the
3: other point, Terence, if I make cut in there, you, you, you mentioned the independent assessment panel earlier on, and, and Mosin gave um, the ident- you know the this the qualifications and, spe- and specialties on that but it's a question of who chose the independent assessment panel you know, why Why were these people chosen for it mm-hmm. and why wasn't the neurosurgeon, it's blatant it's a blatant omission that, 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 and, and, and not only wasn't there one neurosurgeon, surely be, surely be to God if if, um, if 75% of, of major trauma centre patients have a severe head injury, not only should there have been one neurosurgeon, there should have been three or four people three or four neurosurgeons on the panel.
2: I well, think also the um, th- that we have um, highlighted that problem in the four letters that we wrote over the 18 months to the Department of Health. Um, unfortunately, the minister didn't see that it would be beneficial to give us half an hour of his time for us to explain. That's extraordinary. Dishes. Absolutely. Um, even yeah. up until the day before he made the announcement, I was on the phone to his advisor, literally pleading to delay the announcement and give us a I said, I have a 15 minute presentation to give the minister and all of these patient safety issues would have been brought out. We had outlined them in a letter. The response that we've got back from the minister and from the HSE is that the independence assessment panel consulted a neurosurgeon we don't know who the neurosurgeon was we actually don't know where this neurosurgeon was and also you and I know it's different if you have a neurosurgeon on the panel who can vote who can put his point across who can say I think it should be in this hospital or that hospital who's involved in the scoring system for the hospitals it's very different uh, for someone to pick up the phone to somebody who's sitting in UK or US and say, "Well, what do you think about this?" The, the other point, um, you know, people have accused
3: us, I, I, our neurosurgical department, of being kind of quiet and meek about this, you know, over the last few weeks. and discussions we've had with some of your colleagues and other media outlets, uh, Terence, but we've been on, we've been going on to the government and the HSC for the last eighteen months about this. We've written to to. to uh, Teton dekar, to Tok Martin, to Minister Donnelly, we've written to everybody asking asking for meetings, uh, highlighting the safety concerns, highlighting the composition of of the uh, independent assessment panel. So just to reiterate there was no neurosurgeon on that panel and now we are in we are told that it's somebody abroad that we don't know who, who's who's given the, the yes you can do that there. So now the care of all head injured patients, Uh, And the the future direction of this has been adjudicated or judged on by an unknown person who apparently works abroad, uh, whose qualifications we don't know, whose experience we don't know, who's said to be an expert, but we don't know who they are. So the whole future of of head injury care has been adjudicated by this person that we
2: don't know their identity. Nelson And the the other issue I want to bring up is that um, in reply to a letter that we we wrote to the Irish Times, one of the things, and also in in reply to our letters, um, eventually the Health Minister replied to our letters. um, His letter was emailed to us on the evening before he made the announcement. So we had no chance of going back to him with anything. But one of the things that we have been told is, you know, there was a public consultation about this. But the public consultation uh, outlined what specialties should be in a major trauma center. And it said neurosurgery, general surgery, uh, vascular surgery, all these should be components of a major trauma center. There is no argument about that. It also said that they will set up an independent assessment panel to decide where the major trauma center should go. We don't have a problem with that, but... (laughs) Uh, maybe, you know, anyone that's involved in trauma would have thought that there would be a neurosurgeon on that panel. So at the time the public consultation was put out there and we were told there will be an independent assessment panel, it didn't say who is going to be on the independent assessment panel. It didn't say what specialties are going to be on the independent assessment panel. And we would have thought that that independent assessment panel should have a neurosurgeon on it. And we don't mean one of us. We mean a neurosurgeon with expertise, from anywhere in the world.
1: Well, I think it's vital that this evidence is looked at um, and, and studied because it comes down to patient care. And my worry um, uh, is that in 10 years' time and 15 years' time, we'll be looking at people suing because they said, I didn't get the proper care because the surgeon wasn't there. because the husband, And all because I think bureaucrats don't fundamentally want to take doctor's word for Uh, for how the patient is and and patient and the evidence that is there so uh, and we're delighted in Irish Medical Times to give you guys the chance to talk about these issues and to make it clear that like as you say this is not a matter moment, competitive issue it's about patient care it's about uh, the best way of, of saving the most people and and being the most efficient and it's tragic that it is this way um, we're we're almost out of time, um, Donica, I would just, just like to just get a, a wrap up from you. Yeah, on, on. just
3: just one uh, a couple of other points, Terrence, before we finish. You know, there is this uh, kind of kind of thinking out there. Oh, neurosurgery in Beaumont, you know, uh, doesn't take all the patients that it should. That it that it should. I, w- I would absolutely refute that. Um, Beaumont uh, admits and operates on the patients, but it does offer um, follow up care to other patients who are who about whom were consulted. For example, you could have a patient in another hospital who has had a, a fall, bumped their head, has a small contusion. But we do follow up care to all of those patients, all of those type of patients as well. And we offer an outstanding on-call service, 24-7 on-call service with our 13 neurosurgical uh, team, a 13 neurosurgical consultant team and upwards of 25 uh, junior doctors on our team. and. Um, I think a few we have huge problems with regard to who set up the independent assessment panel composition. Why wasn't there a neurosurgeon on it or two or three neurosurgeons? Who was the neurosurgeon that was contacted about the decision? Why haven't we been why haven't we been listened to over the last two years? I mean, come on for crying out loud. We're looking after these patients night and day. And to say, well, we need a whole new process because somehow it's sort of not good enough in Beaumont is absolutely outrageous. The doctors and nurses and all the allied specialists in Beaumont do an absolutely magnificent job looking after the patients and bust themselves looking after these patients. And we've countless letters of thanks and praise from patients and their extended families. And and what do we get? We get a cold shoulder from the bureaucracy, a cold shoulder from the government, a cold shoulder from the HSC,
2: and actually the service taken away from
3: us. Why? For what?
2: Can I just just come, come that because one of the things that uh, Donica was talking about is that in the letters that were sent back to us from the HSC and from the health minister, one of the things that two, two things were mentioned, one was that um, 60% of patients with head injury now it's categorized as, as um, abbreviated injury score or AIS of three or greater. Do not end up in neurosurgical centers anyway. That that's the way it kind of they've put it through, and therefore things can be improved. Now, there's a problem with that statement. Um, AIS of three or greater doesn't actually automatically mean that you have a severe major trauma. In other words, it doesn't automatically put you into the ISS greater than fifteen. That has to go to a major trauma center. So that quote kind of dilutes the figures. Um, So we need to look at what we need to look at is what percentage of admissions to a major trauma center internationally and also based on our own own data would have head injury and that's 60% or up to 75%. The other thing is that the reason 60% 60 of head injuries don't end up in a neurosurgical center right now is in a big part due to inadequate resources. If you look at uh, NHS standards for neurosurgery for the population that we serve, we should have about 150 neurosurgical beds. We have just over 60, Uh, 20 neurocritical care beds. We have nine, five neurosurgical operating theaters per day. We have three. So the solution is to expand the neurosurgical services. We are not arguing with that, but that should be on the correct site. It should be somewhere where you have the comprehensive neurosurgical centers, not fragmented into different centers, which is going back 40 years. Um, So, and the other figure that's being quoted in in the media, um, partly by the HSE, is that uh, 30% of trauma patients in Ireland need transfer to another center to receive the care that they need. And therefore we need a major trauma center. We are not arguing with that. Why don't they give us the data on why these patients need transfer? Are the majority of them actually being transferred for neurosurgery? So we agree that we need a major trauma center. We agree that we need a trauma system, but it, it, you know, and they keep talking about under one roof, but it has to be under the correct roof to achieve the outcomes that we want for our patients.
1: Well, let's hope the minister um, listens to the evidence. I'll be asking him to come on this podcast uh, next month and answer some of your questions. Um, I've been talking to uh, Mohsen Jabodpour, a consultant neurosurgeon at Beaumont, and also Professor Donica O'Brien, who's also a consultant at Beaumont. And uh, this is Terence Cosgrave on the Irish Medical Times podcast. And we'll be right back. So in this uh, June issue of Irish Medical Times, we have an article also from um, Stephen Bowes. And Stephen is the Global Practice Director for Data Management and Security Technologies Consulting Services at BSI. And he specializes in cybersecurity and information resilience. Uh, He leads their global team in securing clients' digital strategies and providing cost-effective solutions for data discovery, regulatory, and compliance requirements. So Stephen, um, can I ask you first of all about um how do we take the proactive uh, approach to dealing with risk in healthcare and uh, given what's happened in the last couple of weeks
4: yeah it's a great question and one that not just healthcare but everybody's been asking themselves over the, over the last several years um so with healthcare the first thing we well first thing we need to be be very aware of is the fact that there is uh, there's no one silver bullet here there's no one single thing you can do to protect your environment to protect your data Um, it's a layered approach and um, the thing about the healthcare side of things is similar to financial services and pharmaceutical um, the data is very valuable you know because of the content of the data because of what's contained within it 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 can be sold for for a tidy sum uh, in the right channels so healthcare um, providers are very much a high level target for for the attack and for bad actors Um, the other thing as well is the healthcare profession has True no fault of its own, because of other reasons, or other priorities and operational reasons, it's been behind the curve in terms of security and specifically cybersecurity in recent years. Um, so it's a layered approach. And from a proactive perspective, what I say to uh, and you know, the, the people we're discussing this with is the first thing to be aware of is from a risk management perspective, know what your vulnerabilities are, you know, know what your your weak points are and look to to address those. Uh, the specific issue that's affecting the the country at the moment and, and uh, our HSE uh, is ransomware, uh, which is one form of cyber attack. And and the key to to minimizing that occurring is to understand the, the workflow of a ransomware attack and then slowly but surely, you know, work on each element of it, breaking, breaking a complex problem down to simple steps and dealing with those steps in turn.
1: I, I thought that was the only, uh, I thought ransomware was the only sort of attack that you could make on a system. I mean, is there... Are there other forms of attack that people are vulnerable to? Oh, there's,
4: there's a ton of attacks, Terrence. An example would be a malicious insider. So somebody that's not a ransomware attack, it's somebody who's a malicious insider. They could be doing it um, for financial gain. They could be doing it to be troublesome, um, to be you know, mischievous or otherwise. Uh, they might have certain um, credentials inside. And so that that's a problem. And we see that as well with inside trading with financial services where people have inside knowledge.
1: So, so you're saying potentially somebody who works at a hospital or a general practice might deliberately try to Put some bug in the system uh, uh, to uh, just for their own for whatever reason. Not, not even, yeah, not even necessarily a bug. It could could well be
4: a, around the data. It could be the data that's valuable in the, in the right hands and and be, to look to capitalize on that. Or it could be to do with intellectual property. To, to you know to, with 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 pharmaceutical recipes, recipes you know surgery. It could be anything. Uh, that data inside the healthcare system is valuable.
1: Okay. Well, we're let's let's look at the types of threats that we're looking at today because we've had one from. Um, this group called Conti and you know, there are are other groups out there who are these types of characters and how dangerous are they? And are we likely to see more of these types of attacks uh, as we go on, you know, in in the future?
4: Yeah, absolutely. It's a a great question. And um, so the first question, the first element of the question is who are these people? These, these are bad actors. These are criminals. And they're in it for monetary gain. That's the simple fact of the matter. If there was no money in it, they wouldn't do it. They'd they'd look at something else. Um, For for the most part, a lot of these these criminal uh, organizations are... Um, supported or uh, or facilitated, is probably the better word, in various states around the world, from North from Korea to Russia and others in between. Uh, and they're they're there to, to gain money. That's what they're there to do. Um, so they will look to disrupt, um, you know, it, we've seen it in the elections in the US. We've seen it in the healthcare system here. We've seen it in the colonial pipeline in America in recent weeks. So they're looking for financial gain. They're looking for a payoff. They're looking for a payout. Um, and And what we're seeing, especially in the last 12 months, is the value of the payouts is increasing dramatically. It's doubled year on year, actually doubled. Uh, And one of the reasons for that is cryptocurrency because cryptocurrency is doubling and tripling over the same time period. So if you ask for the same amount of Bitcoin in 2019, it's worth X amount if you ask for the same number of Bitcoin in 2020 or 2021, it's worth why amount or Y is greater than X. So, it's, 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 so they 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 work behind these regimes. They're in for monetary gain. And to answer your final question, uh, will we see more of it? Absolutely. They're evolving their commercial model. These organizations work on a commercial basis. They have a full business model. They have a project plan. And in fact, what we're seeing a rise of is ransomware as a service. So what that is, is whereby you don't have to be an actual, as a bad actor, you don't have to actually... You know, put the payload in yourself. You can actually rent it, like Netflix. You can pay a fee to them, and you can identify your target, and they will attack that target on your behalf. There'll be a payout; they get a percentage, you get a percentage. It's a commercial model.
1: It seems like um, the the most immoral type of activity. Um, I believe that this the, the the money involved is is has surpassed the the international drug dealing. But let me ask you a question about how we protect ourselves against that. There's recently talk about having a, a, a cybersecurity office here or a government one, and most of the conversation seemed to center around the salary of the person who would run that organization in, in that it might be almost a half a million euro. Um, how how would we go about setting up first of all, I presume we're not spending enough to protect ourselves. How would we go about doing that? And should we throw off the shackles in terms of the people we need to hire? Are they in a separate category from the normal civil servant?
4: um, yeah, so there's a couple of questions there and, and they're all re- really good. Um, so in, what I would say is the appointment of one, to whatever number of people to uh, appropriate positions, irrespective of their skills or experience or otherwise, uh, would probably not mitigate this specific attack or stuff like that. I think what needs to be taken is we need to look at the, the entire infrastructure uh, and look at security by design. We need to actually ingrain into our organizations from the bottom and from the top down and from the bottom up a security culture. No matter how good the people are in charge, if somebody clicks on a link, if somebody downloads an attachment, puts their credentials in, um, they will be compromised. So security has been grained in, in in a by design model. Um, it To answer the question around, around the, the NCSC and the director of NCSC position that you've alluded to, absolutely, that, that position is crucial and, and will be filled, I've no doubt, in in, in due course. That will give us the, the strategic direction, that high-level overarching you know, line of sight, the journey we need to go on from where we currently are, which is not in a great spot, to where we need to be and, and move along that journey. But to answer your question around the actual attacks, I think we need to bring cybersecurity to a board level. It has to be on the agenda. It has to be the highest levels of thought from the top down, from the top down and get everybody involved and understand that from a responsibility perspective, every person in an organization from the from the lowest of the low to the highest of the high, all of responsibility to each other and to the organization as a whole. If you are careless, if you do make a mistake, it can compromise the organization.
1: A lot of our listeners would be GPs and people working in general practice at various levels from single-handed people to people in, in large partnerships. Um, what would be your advice to them in terms of um, you know, they're smaller organizations. Are they at risk? Are they in danger? And what would be your advice to them in terms of protecting themselves?
4: Yeah. So what I would say is um, it's monetary game. So um, there's a couple of ways. We do know that 99% of all attacks require human intervention. They require somebody to open an email, somebody to open an attachment, somebody to click on a link. So, so what I would say is if you're going to do like the easiest return on investment, I would focus on people. I would focus on security awareness training. I would make sure people are trained up around use of the systems themselves, What to, to know what the spot in terms of a malicious link, what, what, what a link looks like, what it should look like, and what these other links look like. Um, and I would also make sure that they would have regular training, probably monthly, quarterly, and have that built into their, you know, their job uh, profile, their description, and, and also run some simulation exercises that are controlled by your IT team, or if it's a smaller practice do some practice tests, like anything, like especially in the medical profession, practice makes perfect. Um, So 99% of attacks require human intervention. If the humans don't intervene with these things, um, you don't get attacked. The other thing I'd say is over 90% of the attacks come through email. Okay, they come through the email, through the phishing campaigns. Um, So again, if we're going to go with kind of the the quickest, you know, the low-lying fruit, the quickest wins, I would say look at your email security system and make sure that for your current provider, if it's Microsoft or Google, whatever it is, turn on all the security features that are available. And if uh, and this is really for an IT department to say, but if you are not happy that they're at this, the level that you want, then to look to augment those security features with additional security controls. So email and people would be the two key areas if I was looking at you know what are the quick wins we should be looking at. They're
1: the two quick wins that we would know about in the industry. At, at the higher level then say, maybe the private clinic, um, you know, that is maybe working into secondary care and might have, say, up to 100 employees. Um, they're looking at, like, a, perhaps a, a huge expense coming on top of this. What can they do? What would you advise for them? Obviously, they would need a, a greater level of security. What what sort of um, things should they be doing?
4: Well, what I will say about this specific attack, um, what's, been, what's been handled well, well, the element of it that's been handled well has been the communications. They came straight out of the traps. They informed all the relevant parties uh, from the NCSC to Angarda Con and the, the DPC, and they communicate straight to the general public through Shock through various statements. So the communications element is, is extremely important to have open communications, frequent communications, correct communications. Um, so I, what I would say to those uh, one other element, apart from giving technology advice, would be to run tabletop exercises and have board level involvement in those exercises. Make the assumption that there's a breach going to uh, has occurred. What do we What do we do? What systems do we do? How do we communicate? Who do we notify? And the whole concept that if you run the tabletop exercise, you can document that exercise. You can fine tune it over a period of time. And what it means is that when an instant occurred, and I do say the word when an instant occur occurs, then everybody knows what their role is. Everybody knows what to do. No one's trying to figure out what their step is. Everybody knows who's communicating with the press, who's communicating with the, with the shareholders, who's engaging with the internal teams, who's notifying the DPC. It's a fine-tuned thing. It's like the analogy is you know if the, a ship begins to sink, you know the last thing you want is that the, the leadership running around trying to figure out what to do. Everybody should know where the lifeboats are, what to do, and how to handle the, the flow of traffic. So that's the one thing I would say. Do a table like exercise. Make sure everybody's involved from the, to, from the top down that you get board buy-in and fine-tune it over a period of time.
1: One of the, and what my bugbears, bears, um, Stephen, I, I've been in, in medical journalism for over 20 years. And when I started, we people were talking about having a electronic patient record and a unique um, patient identifier. And of course, medically, there's, So many reasons for that, because you can you can start putting data together. You can start looking at groups and cohorts of patients. You can come up with all kinds of treatments and increased knowledge about particularly rare diseases. And you can you can really get sizable data where you can do some great work. Um, We're still talking about it. Uh, but if we had unique uh, patient identifiers or electronic patient record, people are saying, well, no, I'm so glad that we don't or our, all our records are, are on paper. But obviously, that's not necessarily a barrier. It could even be an aid to to fighting these guys in, in the terms of if they only find some patient that is a long series of digits, it's not really going to do them much good. It's the connection of that with the actual name. So, is it would it be possible or where, where, would, where would an electronic patient record come into all of this? Would it, would it offer potentially any protection or would it be would it increase the risk again?
4: Um, you know, you could look at it from both sides. Um, obviously, what you've explained there, the functional benefits, the operational benefits make absolute sense, you know, to have that kind of cohesive uh, record of, of activity. Uh, from a cybersecurity perspective, there are technologies available in terms of obfuscation, which is where it can, what, it doesn't have, for example, Stephen Bowles' name, it has the, the characters are obfuscated. Um, so there is technology available. The, the trick, though, is that we have a, a layered system that has been built upon through uh, an amalgamation of organizations. So the HSC obviously comprises of Eastern Health port, certain Healthport, port, et cetera, uh, and also combining that with, with a series of legacy applications uh, and legacy operating systems, you know, born out of systems born, that were bought perhaps in the eighties and nineties, because th- those companies could well be out of support or out of existence even. But the systems are still being used to this day. So it's a bit of a journey to go on there. Uh, in terms of the overarching piece about having a single system, sorry, a single record, there should be no problem with that. You know, many governments around the world have a single identifier that they can match to an individual across multiple systems. Um, but I think there's quite a journey to go on there to, to bring those systems into play. There's definitely operational benefits. There's also cybersecurity benefits if you have the single system, because you can really zoom in. You know, one of the problems we have with the, with the HSC and other organizations is they've got hundreds of systems i think potentially thousands of systems so when you take the systems down you've got thousands of portals and dashboards to log into for each individual system to check it bring it online and so on if you had a simplified you know consolidated series of applications even down to 200 that would make that process a lot easier to support to secure uh to recover from and so on so you know i could see i could see the benefits on both sides uh, the other the offset of that benefit is, is of course if one system does get compromised there's a, a far greater impact uh, than if, if people's data is spread across 10, 12, 50 systems. Um, but that definitely there's an
1: argument that you had to
4: consider consolation is the way to go.
1: Well, in The Graduate, um, Dustin Hoffman was told by older people to go into plastics. And I think possibly a lot of parents are, uh, out there will tell their children to get into cybersecurity. Can I ask you about your own industry and uh, your own company and what what this ransomware attack and, uh, has meant? And if it's a, if it's a growing industry, how, how the industry is doing, where we are, we sort of are, is it hiring a lot? Uh, what's the story with cybersecurity, particularly in Ireland?
4: Yeah, absolutely. It's a massively growing uh, space. You know, if you look, think about the amount of data that's even just in Ireland, I mean, Facebook are, you have their data here, and Google and Amazon and so on, and Microsoft. So there's a massive amount of data here, f- far more proportionally than there is anywhere else in Europe. Um, BSI is has been around for over a century, uh, British Standards Institution, and it's been around well known as the national standards body, created the, the British Standards, which formed the ISO standard, the international standards, over the years. Uh, from a cybersecurity space, it's it's absolutely you know the, the the children nowadays coming through the ranks—they're all familiar with devices and, and so on. So these, these are really techno techno files coming through. Years ago, I'm I'm old school. I'm, I predate computers, so I, I did maths in, in college, uh, but it was a good precursor into the computing industry. Uh, it's definitely a, a, an area of growth. It's rising up the agenda. You know, pr, you know, we we work off a subset of a subset of a budget. So if you think about any organization, there's an IT budget. That's a subset, and then within IT, there's a cybersecurity budget. Um, But definitely cybersecurity has got onto the agenda. The thing about it is now one thing we've seen the fallout from this specific um, incident, but also throughout 2021, has been an increase from other CIOs and security officers who don't want to be that person. They don't want to be that person in the news on the front page, of the, you know, with their data that has been exploited or there's been a breach or whatever it is. Um, they don't want to be that person, and they don't want to be the person to say, "I didn't. I saved the company a small amount of money, but we we made a mistake and there was a gap when we got breached." So it's a it's a growing industry. It's a very in- interesting industry, um, and uh, you know, I re- highly recommend it to, for anybody think about getting into technology and getting into computing and getting into cyber, you know, itself.
1: It's, it's a difficult one, though, um, as you say, Stephen, because um, I've done it myself. I'll admit to it. I had a package coming to me and I got a message on my phone saying that that I owed some money on a package. And uh, ultimately, I paid €1.99, um, a, a euro and 99 cent. And I had to cancel my whole credit card and change that, go through a whole kind of thing because it wasn't, of course, for my package. But at that moment in time, I was, I was expecting a package. I was thinking about the package. I get a message on my phone and then uh, I'm only saying this because I don't have any shame, but a lot of people would not want to admit. And that may be the problem, especially in a small uh, GP practice or, or in a, in a small clinic that people might've opened an email, maybe even had a, been at a training session last week where they said, don't open that one. And now they look they opened it and they look, oh, that's right. They did say that last week but unfortunately now they've opened it and the problem now is that they may not, they may not say it, that that's where it comes from, which, which could help. So what would be your advice to people on that? I mean, it's, it's really is own up to it. And, you know, when you find it and, First of all, train the people, but then it's very important that they come forward if they think that a breach has occurred.
0: Yeah,
4: 100%. This is a team effort. You know, you know, we don't see the witch hunt for the person in the HSE at the moment for who clicked on that email or whatever, whatever way it came in, we don't know. Um, we're not seeing that, and rightly so. Um, absolutely. So there, there, there's absolutely no shame. I mean, the, the, one of the first defenses um, any organization has, specifically ransomware, is time. And we saw that in this instance, the Department of Health Saw a similar compromise, but they got notified and they got there in time to nullify the the impact. Unfortunately, H C didn't get there in time to nullify the impact. So the time element is crucial. So please do, if you do, click on a link, and it'll it you know it could be it could be absolutely nothing. It could like like it could, your your screen could freeze for a second. There might be a little black window appear, or nothing happens. But if you think if it looks wrong and it smells wrong, and you think it's wrong, report it. Worst case scenario, it's it's you know you, you've got you've bought your organization some time for your IT team to respond. Best case scenario, you were it was a false positive. You, there was nothing wrong with the link, and away you go. You know you reported it, people notified it, they checked it out, it was okay. So absolutely. And the other thing is, you you your organization is only as strong as your weakest link. If you put it in financial services terms, you can have all the security in the world looking after the the the, the money and the gold and the assets in a bank. Um, but if somebody lets somebody in the back door from who's a security guard, then that, that's that's game over so uh, absolutely please do respond as quickly as possible you can give your IT teams time to respond to the the incidents
1: well it's been a fascinating um, hearing all about that Uh, thank you Stephen and um, we look forward to hearing more about this in the future and maybe we'll have you back thank you very much Okay, next up, we have a, a social entrepreneur, a term I think that didn't exist uh, 10 years ago. And uh, his name is Graham Clifford. He uh, is the winner of an Irish Healthcare Award, uh, which, by the way, have uh, uh, recently opened. We're just receiving entries now. So for those of you out there who are thinking of that, um, now is the time to get your entries together and get them sent in to us. But uh, let's talk to Graham, um, who is the, uh, head of Translate Ireland and uh, I'm going to just uh, ask him uh, or ask you, Graeme, uh, what exactly Translate Ireland is and uh, what it is that you do.
5: Thanks very much, Terence. I should say that I, I didn't even know I was an in inverted commas social a- entrepreneur until somebody was writing about what we were doing and, and christened me with that, so I'm kind of labelled with that now. Um, so Translate Ireland um, is an initiative which um, enables us to work with doctors and nurses and other healthcare professionals um, in Ireland who originally come from overseas to produce video messages on different areas of health uh, targeted at the migrant community for whom English is um, obviously not a first language, or for many who don't speak or understand English well. Uh, Terence,
1: and that's important, Graham, because. Uh, I think for people listening to medical advice, they, they they have a greater level of trust when they hear it in their own language.
5: I think so. Yes, definitely. That was something that we were very keen to have as part of the initiative, uh, Terence. It, it's so important that the resource that somebody is listening to is a trusted one. You know, I I I think that especially in this era of you know dubious content online and so on it's understandable that people might be a little bit uh, unsure about information. So we would always stress the importance where possible, if it was a doctor or a GP of wearing the stethoscope around the neck or if it was, you know, somebody who worked in a hospital wearing the scrubs and things like that. Just little visual things that uh, add to that credibility and that trustworthiness of the message that's being delivered.
1: And have you had any feedback from... uh, from the, from those people, in terms of how their uh, communities have dealt with COVID nineteen, um, in terms of being able to follow the public health guidelines and so on.
5: Yeah, well, I suppose that, that that's where a lot of my work before this, um, and 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 still at the same time, Terence is, is in the area of working with asylum seekers, refugees, migrant workers, and things like that. Um, I would also have founded the Sanctuary Runners Initiative, so that where asylum seekers, refugees and Irish people come together to run, jog and walk and all of that. So I was hearing back from people that I would know very well that they didn't feel that there was information on COVID-19 and other things um, that was for them, you know. Um, the messaging around COVID-19, if you remember, especially around the start, was very good, but it was very much in English and Irish. So the last census showed that about 90, 90,000 people in Ireland would say they spoke English not at all or not well. So where was the messaging for them? So that, that was the kind of... We went down the whole Mike Ryan kind of thing, I suppose, Terence of speed over perfection initially, and we just wanted to get the messages out to people quickly about safety, about what to do, what not to do, and so on. And also to counteract, I suppose, a lot of... Uh, information coming from people's home countries that would have been at odds with what we were saying, you know, Uh, especially when you think of young Brazilian workers, uh, where the information coming from President Bolsonaro and Brazil would have said, look, it's all a hoax, really, you know, it's all fine. So it was very important for us to get those messages out. In terms of the feedback then, it was quite incredible how quickly the, the video messages spread, because the way our system is set up is that we want uh, people in the migrant community to share the messages themselves, you know. Um, and it's very easy to do at the touch of a button now on smartphones. So uh, we're able to gauge how many views there are of the videos and get feedback. And it's all been very positive, I would say, especially with uh, uh, Portuguese speakers. So that's the Brazilian community mainly. Also with Arabic speakers and Romanian as well. There's big uptake there.
1: I've read recently that in Bulgaria, their national policy was to protect um, people in, with powerful positions, people in government uh, and senior people in in the administration rather than vulnerable people. So, yes, the messages there would have been slightly contradictory to the Irish ones. Tell me about the sanctuary runners, uh, Graham. I didn't know that, that, that. I don't know that much about them.
5: Yes, this is something I was having. I think I was having a midlife crisis or something back in early 2018, Terrence. I was out running uh, to try to to, to rediscover my youth. And also my my background is as a feature writer, broadcaster and journalist for nearly 20 years. And a lot of my work would have been in refugee camps in parts of northern Africa. I would have crossed from Eastern to Central Europe on foot with migrants in 2015 at the height of the migrant crisis reporting at the time for RTE and for the Irish independence and so on. And I was also very, always very interested uh, in, in the people behind the stories, but also interested in what uh, people in the host community, so Irish people in this, in this case, you know, what, what, why our, our reaction might be what it is or what does it say about us, how we kind of interact with asylum seekers, refugees and so on. And um, and but I didn't when I looked around, I didn't really see something that brought people together in kind of an, an organic, positive way. And so when I was running in a race in Waterford in early 2018, I looked around and I thought, ah, oh, running is the key because it's so simple. So what we do is we have these blue running tops, Terrence, uh just say solidarity, friendship, and respect on the back. And when you join the Sanctuary Runners and it's all free, there's no donations or anything like that. When you join, you get one of these tops. So It doesn't matter what your status is, whether you're an asylum seeker, a refugee, citizen, resident. Everybody's equal because they're all wearing the same top. And so we would run frequently together. We've now 28 groups across Ireland. Uh, Three and a half thousand people would run with us or walk with us or jog with us. And now we're extending overseas as well to other countries who have similar issues with social cohesion, integration, all that kind of thing.
1: And is Ireland a racist country, Graham, in your opinion?
5: I think uh, it's, they're loaded terms, I'd say, uh, to start with, uh, terms, but it, it would be folly to think uh, that we would be somehow immune to, uh, you know, uh, to, to perceptions on race that were somehow different to the British or the Americans or whatever. Um, and so I think it's, it's more about uh, acknowledging, I suppose, what racism means. I mean, I think everybody, including myself, would have a preconceived notion about somebody maybe because of uh, of their race, and it's not it's not right, but it's ingrained over generations. Uh, similarly, somebody who is black or somebody who's from the Middle East, somebody who's Asian, they would have a view on another because of their race. It's not right, but it isn't. It's the inevitable, uh, you know, result of how society has evolved over time. And it, you know, we can we we use these terms and they're very loaded. You know, like r- racist. It, it, it it's 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 seen as a very pointed term. My point is that if we're more mature about it, we say uh we need to treat everybody with respect, regardless of their colour or regardless of where they come from, their language, whatever, uh it's better to, to deal with this, I think, in a much wider sense. Um so to answer your question, yeah, I, I think of course, and it would be it would be utterly bizarre if we said we weren't.
1: Well we were um delighted to uh to give you an award for the work you've done with Translate Ireland, it's it's outstanding. Can I ask you what has been the reaction to that reward? Um, in in terms of has it helped your profile or has it helped you uh, spread your message?
5: Oh, undoubtedly. I mean, it was it was huge for us because not only for the work that we're doing. You know, it's, it's my wife Catherine is a GP, I should say, and it, 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 the two of us set this up together. Um, and through her um, work, uh, we, we, we were able to get great uh, partnerships with the IPGP and so on, um, and, and now the HSE Social Inclusion Team. But what the award did was not only did it recognise what we had done, and that was wonderful, um, and the service itself, and, and bringing us to the attention of many others, but also, in a clever way, I think, it focused on the whole area of communicating with migrants And the importance of that and the potential for more of it. And I think I've seen after the award, so many more conversations starting. We've been getting phone calls from across different areas of health in Ireland, Terence, and and so undoubtedly it it, it really helped.
1: Listen, Graeme, it's been wonderful to talk to you and uh, congratulations on your great work with both Translate Ireland and the Sanctuary Runners. We wish you all the best for the future. Um, So thanks very much and good luck. Thanks. Thanks so much, Terence. Thank you very much.
0: You've been listening to the Irish Medical Times podcast with Terence Cosgrave. Check us out at imt.ie or subscribe to the print edition at imt.ie forward slash subscribe. Subscription to the print edition is free to doctors who are registered to practice in Ireland. To comment on or write about an issue in the podcast, please email editor at imt.ie.